Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. While there has been a recent boom in Jewish literacy and learning within the U.S., few resources exist to enable American Jews to experience the rich primary sources of Yiddish culture. Stepping into this void, Miriam Udell has crafted the collection titled Honey on the Page, A Treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature, published by New York University Press in 2020, which offers a feast of beguiling original translations of stories and poems for children. Miriam Udell is an associate professor of German studies and Jewish studies at Emory University. She was also ordained in 2019 as part of the first cohort of the executive ordination track at Yeshivat Maharat, a program designed to bring qualified mid-career women into the Orthodox rabbinate. And I'm so glad that her book has brought her to our show. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much, Zalman. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, to get started, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to this to, to, to produce this work? Sure. So I started working on what would become Honey on the Page in 2013. At the time, I was teaching Yiddish language classes every year at Emory, and I had two young children. And it was really the convergence of my work as a language instructor in particular, and as a mother, that led me to wonder, well, are there any children's books in Yiddish that my students might be prepared to to tackle after a semester and a half of language study and that I might want to share with my own children. And so I started looking into it and I very quickly realized that not only did this literature exist, but that there was an embarrassment of riches, that most of it had already been digitized by the Yiddish Book Center. It was sitting there in plain sight as PDF scans on their website. And for the most part, nobody was really doing much with it. And I thought somebody's got to to take this on and propose a canon by creating an anthology. And why not me? Uh, And I kind of slid in that way into the, (laughs) the study, the critical study of Yiddish children's literature. Um, And then I was very fortunate because another thing that happened in 2013 is that the Yiddish Book Center started their translation fellowship program. And I applied for that first cohort and was able to study the craft of translation in a somewhat systematic way with other Yiddishists. Wow, that does seem like a a really tremendous experience. And we're going to talk um, in a little while about the translation process. Uh, But for now, I want to step back a drop and talk about the title of your anthology. So the title is Honey on the Page. What is the significance of that title? 
Sure. So in the locus classicus of Jewish education, which is the the cheder, where little boys as young as three or four, but in some places five years old, would go for their primary Jewish education, um, the custom was for them to arrive on the first day and for the malamed or the rebbe to smear honey on the first page of an olive base primer, of an alphabet primer. And the... The teacher um, would do this. The teacher would smear the honey on, and the idea was that the pupils would lick up the honey and incorporate its sweetness and always associate that with learning. And so when I created something for English-speaking, for Anglophone children and adult readers, I also wanted to to incorporate that sense of sweetness into the experience of reading and learning. Wow. And uh, you describe the, the subtitle of of the uh, of the anthology uh, refers specifically to children's literature, uh, but who exactly is the ideal audience for these stories and for this literature? So this is a a question uh, that I've been very stubborn in answering. Um, I've maintained all along, and I write about this in the introduction, that this is not a book just for children, and it's not a book just for adults. It's really a kind of intergenerational book for what I call children and adults in proximity to one another. And what I mean by that is that it might be a child who's being read aloud to. It might be more of an independent reader who's going to be able to talk about what she or he read that evening over dinner or the next time they visit a grandparent or Zoom with a grandparent, as the case might be right now. Um, or <laughs> it's a it's a scholar, it's an undergraduate enrolled in a course about modern Jewish culture, and they're reading it in a in a critical way, but it's also taking them back to somewhat recent experiences of being a child reader, or it's a much older adult who's having those experiences reawakened through the process of reading and thinking about these stories and poems. All right. So clearly there's a very wide population of people who might enjoy and be enriched by these stories. Uh, so when were these stories originally published? So Yiddish children's literature, at least the corpus that I'm talking about, which is a product of the secular left, and it's really quite distinct from the children's literature that continues to be published in the Hasidic world. Um, it's a bounded historical phenomenon it starts to arise, it starts to emerge at the turn of the 20th century through retrofitting stories that were originally aimed at adult readers, but that had child protagonists or themes that were were considered interesting to juvenile readers. So they would take these stories by Sholem Aleichem and Yod Lamed Peretz, and they would take out all the so-called boring parts, all of the the long disquisitions <laughs> about the unfairness of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. And they would <laughs> they would put in a glossary of words that a child might not know, and boom, that was considered a children's book in 1900, 1902. Um, and it was really only in the second decade of the 20th century that people began to write and to publish with juvenile readers in mind. And then there is an explosive growth of this literary corpus in the 20s and the 30s that tracks along with the development of the school systems and after-school systems of the secular left. So in New York, at the at the peak, starting in 1927, um, you had four different secular school systems that all required educational materials, leisure reading for their students. And so that's happening in the United States. And we also see uh, an explosion in publication in the Soviet Union in the 20s that carries on into the 40s. And there's, there's publishing happening in Europe before 
World War II, before the Holocaust. And then a lot of that European activity shifts to Latin America after the Holocaust in particular. So it really becomes a, a transnational, you know, global Ashkenazi phenomenon that these stories are being published in Yiddish for children. Right. And in the introduction, um, you describe this literature as quintessentially in between. What do you mean by that? What is it in between exactly? So Yiddish itself was so much of an in-between language in the sense of being a hybrid um, of, you know, incorporate literally incorporating vocabulary and grammatical elements from the co-territorial languages that were proximate, but also in between in the sense that its own speakers always had contested linguistic loyalties. There, there was pressure, um, whether you think of it as pressure that was pushing on Yiddish or that was pulling speakers from Yiddish, depending on the time and place, there, that Yiddish was subject to all of these you know, pressures from all of the sides that and the the um, points of tangency that came to impinge on it. And so in that sense, Yiddish itself is in between. And then I would also say that children's literature and what we would now call young adult literature, some of which I include in the volume, that phase of one's reading life, of one's literary life or or life in literacy, if you will, um, that's also in between, right? It's in between the, the earliest stages at which none of us are literate and an adulthood when hopefully we experience a, a total efflorescence of literacy so that those readers are still learning not only about the actual putative content of a given story or poem or play, but they're learning about the process of reading itself. And they're finding themselves and their identity as readers in between pre-literacy and full-blown adult literacy. I see. And how did the tension between the particular and the universal animate this literature? So... I think that this tension is so central and so generative that I decided to structure the whole book around it. Um, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> you, you asked the right question. Um, so I knew that if I wanted the book to appeal to children and to families, that I needed to organize it thematically as opposed to chronologically or geographically or any one of a number of other schemes that might have presented themselves as being very interesting to academics of of various disciplines. So if I was going to tease out some themes, then how was I going to organize those themes? And so I actually looked at a lot of anthologies and Christomathies, which were anthologies with a kind of educational purpose to them from the 20s, from the teens and the 20s. And I don't think that anybody talked about it explicitly, although maybe there's an introductory note somewhere or other that I missed or or didn't end up remembering. But what I noticed as a principle of organization was that these books tended to start with the really distinctively or particularistically Jewish material and move out from that to a wider and wider and more universal scope. And I thought, that makes sense, and I'm going to try to do something like that. So could you talk about the organization of the, of the anthology? How is the anthology organized? So I start with what I think of as the three H's, Jewish Holidays, History, and Heroes, and that, that accounts for the first two parts of the book. First, the holidays. I start with Shabbos, with the Sabbath, because it is the most frequently occurring holiday, and I include three stories that have a Sabbath theme to them. Um, And then I go in the biblical order of starting with Passover and going through the year from Passover to Purim. I did not include 
every holiday. And I made a very intentional decision not to include a Hanukkah story because I felt like American Jewish readers, if anything, have too much access to Hanukkah stories. And we needed to kind of give Lagweimer a signal boost. Um, so I was happy to, to punch up Lagweimer and, uh, and pour him at the expense of Hanukkah. Less <laughs> familiar I, Jewish holidays. Okay. Right, right. Um, then I moved on to Jewish history and heroes. And this is really where I included some of the longer and more mature content in the book, some historical pieces that talk about uh, violence against the Jewish community and themes that might be not really so suitable for a picture book audience in the earlier elementary years. Um, so that was part two. And then I move on to folk tales, fairy tales, and wonder tales. And these are the kinds of stories that we would expect to see paralleled in other cultures. And indeed, a lot of them are. They have fairy tale settings and they're very Jewishly inflected. And then becoming even more universal, I move on to the theme of wise fools. So fool stories. And that's where we, we bring in stories about the Jews of Chelm or the the three braggarts, a group of boys who like to brag to each other and try to one-up each other with their fantastic uh, tales of daring do. And then moving onward, still more universal, allegories, parables, and fables. And some of these have a little bit of, of Jewish marking, but some of them are really not ethnically marked at all. Um, but they are very much about teaching a set of values that under underlay and undergirded the, the politics of the left that, that produced these stories. Then on to something that used to be an, a very nearly universal experience for children, and I hope will be again soon, which is going to school. There's a section called School Days um, about stories that that are set in, in schools, whether that is a traditional cheder that would have been an, an all-boy environment or a more modern Yiddish shule um, that, that's co-educational. And then following closely on the school section, um, there's a, a part about life's classroom and the learning that goes on outside of formal settings. And then I close the book with the most universal experience of all, which is belonging to a family. And these are a set of stories and, and poems. Nope, they're all stories in that section um, called Jewish Families Here and There. Right. Well, clearly uh, a, a true feast uh, to, to dig into. Uh, I want to um, go back to something that you, you uh, just mentioned before about politics. What was the political climate uh, at the time and what, re uh, what relationship did it have with these stories? So it's mostly the 1920s and 30s. So I, I think one of my favorite adjectives to describe the political climate is perfervid. There's just, there's a lot that's, you know, that's boiling and, and boiling over. Um, you know, we've had the Russian Revolution in, in 1917. We have the Soviet experiment fully underway. Um, we have a mass migration to the United States until very abruptly January 1st, 1924. And, you know, the Immigration Act of 1923 just shuts off that spigot very abruptly. Um, so then we have migration to, to Latin America that continues. Of course, in the 1930s, things are really heating up in, in Germany. We see Hitler's rise to power. So there are a lot of, of different things going on. In, in the United States, um, there's, there's the labor movement. There is um, the struggle for racial justice, the struggle for economic justice. And there's really a range of responses to all of this, even within 
the Yiddish-speaking left. So there's a school and a school network for each each ideology, each set of ideas about what the optimal Jewish future might look like. There is the, the Sholem Aleichem folk school network for those who want just, just Yiddish. They want to place the emphasis on Yiddish and the preservation and continued flourishing of Yiddish. There are the Zionist Farband schools who want children to start learning Hebrew at the same time that they start learning Yiddish in the earliest elementary years and who always emphasize the nobility and the excitement of the the project of returning to Eretz Yisrael. Um, there's, there are Bundist schools um, that are teaching... To the land of Israel. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. To the land of Israel, that's right. Uh, There are Bundist schools that are placing socialism at the center of their movement and their commitment to Yiddish might be somewhat incidental, that Yiddish is a good means to the end of reaching the, the Jewish worker. But the main thing is to reach that worker and teach him or her the correct socialist ideology so that eventually there can be revolution. And then there are the full-fledged Farbrente Kommunisten, the ardent communists, for whom Yiddish is almost completely incidental. And it's really about fomenting that revolution with the workers of the world right now. And each of them has schools and then books that they publish in order to to give content to those schools. Right. And who were the Yiddish authors of children's literature during the period that you explore? So one of the really exciting things about juvenile literature, both in Yiddish and in Hebrew, is that it was almost a rite of passage for any major author to try his or her hand at writing something for children. They might not make a career of it, but almost everybody, almost every great name that you can think of tried to write something for children. So I was able to include work by big recognizable names like Sholem Ash and Kadya Molodovsky, without whom we wouldn't think of telling the story of 20th century Yiddish letters. And I was also able to include work by by educators who their their bread and butter was being around children and seeing what mattered to them and seeing how they spoke and seeing how they received stories. So that included figures like uh, Moishe Shifris and Yankev Pat, who became a highly placed administrator in one of the Yiddish school systems. Um, but it also included uh, figures like Malka Shechet, who was the hardest writer to track down any bibliographical information for. But she she started her, she, she emigrated from Poland with her husband uh, during her first pregnancy. So she had a young family. She emigrated from Poland to Havana. And she became a teacher at two of the Jewish schools in Havana. And she published two holiday tales, one for Hanukkah, one for Lagba Omer. Of course, I went for the Lagba Omer or Lagba Omer story. Um, 
And then she brought her young family to the United States and settled in Cincinnati and spent the rest of her career as a teacher in Jewish day schools and yeshivas in Cincinnati. So that's a, you know, that's a very typical kind of a story for for one of my authors. Um, And it's really a diverse group in terms of what they did for a living, how involved they were with Jewish education or with children, where they lived, what kind of ideological commitments they had. And one of my goals in Honey on the Page was to highlight all of those forms of diversity as best I could. Right, because I have to say, uh, when I look through... um the the uh, the table of contents for all of the names of the authors. I wondered how many of them I would recognize as someone who who uh, knows a little bit about Yiddish literature. And I was surprised at first to discover that although there were some names, as you mentioned, some of the most famous uh, Yiddish writers at the time, there were many names that uh, certainly were were new to me and would probably be unfamiliar to a lot of readers, um, as you've said, these are not necessarily um, the most uh, famous names in Yiddish literature at the time, but people who certainly helped to fill out the story of the, the extent of Yiddish literature. Yeah, and I'm hoping that people will come for Sholem Ash and Moshe Kulba, <laughs> and they will stay for Masha Stuker Payuk and Leib Kvitko. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. That's a, a wonderful idea. Um, so I'm wondering how the modern pedagogical techniques at the time that you're looking at influenced uh, Yiddish children's literature. That's a great question. And I'm going to actually answer that one with an example of a, of a specific work. So Eliezer Steinberg is one of those classic Jewish writers who spent his entire career as an educator, mostly in Poland, but with a year running a Yiddish school in Brazil. And he is known and remembered for his Mesholim, his verse fables, which he wrote for Jewish adults, and they're not really for children. They're very playful. They're very clever. They're very delightful. But they really were not written for children. He did, however, write for children. He wrote Purim plays, Purim spielen, and he wrote this really wacky story that I've included called um, Stories from Genesis, where he goes through some of the very memorable stories from the biblical book of Genesis, but he transposes everything to an avian setting, meaning that it's all about birds. So I think that the kind of originating pun that that fuels this whole thing is that the word rov means teacher, rabbi um, in Yiddish, and Yiddish by way of Hebrew. And it also means raven because it's cognate with the German rab. And so the rov, who's a raven, is the teacher, And he's also, you know, he's a raven and he's a teacher. And he tells his (laughs) students, craw, craw, which is, it's not really even Yiddish. It's really um, uh, taich. It's really a Hebraic Yiddish calc, meaning read, read. And it also happens to be the onomatopoeia that a bird would use in Yiddish. So he's Rov and he's telling his students Kroh Kroh. And not only does he transmit some of these uh, classical biblical stories, like the story of a flood, the story of the Tower of Babel in uh, a bird setting with bird speak, but he also models a very progressive schooling situation. So at a certain point, the the little birds, the little chickadees are getting really restless and they're sitting on their branch, but they're jostling each other and they're talking out of turn and they're just kind of getting stir crazy. And he sends them out for recess and tells them to come back. That's an example 
of a really progressive educational idea that Steinberg, the educator, is kind of building right into the story. And this is something that Yod Lamed Peretz writes about in his memoirs of attending Cheder and having his father be very strict and very clear with his teacher that when it looked like little Yitzchak Leibush had had enough, he needed to be sent outside to play in the mud for a while. <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, so you mentioned that um, that the author of this story, as well as some of the others, were themselves teachers. And um, it makes me wonder, to what extent were these um, Yiddish um, ch- uh, uh, children's stories, to what extent did they have a didactic aim? And, and also, what methods were used to achieve those aims? Yes. So I would say that pretty much without, I mean, without exception, almost without exception, I'll hedge a little bit, say almost <laughs> without exception, they do have a didactic aim. I guess if, there, if we were going to admit an exception, it would be some of the fun, silly ones like the three braggarts. And even there, I think we could find lessons. Now, some of them are very explicitly politically engaged and even a bit doctrinaire, Um, others much less so. And doctrinaire writing tends not to age very well. You know, we're talking about stories that are 75, 85, 100 years old. And so the ones that have really stood the test of time tend to be a little bit more subtle in their politics. But what I find these writers are really not shy about teaching is the values that underlie the politics. So values like generosity and thinking about the common good, thinking about the other, being willing to um, stand up to injustice, figuring out what children can realistically do in order to make the world a more just place. Those ideas are kind of loud and proud throughout the corpus of Yiddish children's literature and and therefore very prominent in Honey on the Page. Right. And how was Yiddish children's literature harnessed by Jewish cultural leaders before World War II? So... I'll answer with another example, the the Labzik stories. So the, there's a group of 12 stories that were published by Chavar Paver, was the, the pen name of a man named Gershon Einbinder, uh, published in 1935 by the International Workers' Order for distribution in the Ordenschulen, the order schools, the schools of the order, which was a fully communist-aligned pro-Soviet fraternal and educational organization in the United States. And these are really charming stories about a a mutt, a puppy dog named Labzik, who gets adopted by a very staunchly communist, very warm and loving, Brownsville-dwelling Jewish family. And the kids go on <laughs> adventures and Lobzik tags along and he's like leftist Lassie. He usually saves the day. Um, <laughs> and the kinds of experiences that they had, I, I wish that they were remote. Unfortunately, they're still, they still have a, a terrible amount of currency. Um, the children find themselves um, running up against police abuse and brutality. They find themselves trying to organize a strike action in school in order to secure subsidized lunches for their classmates who can't afford to eat during the Depression. Um, There is even a story in Lobzik about an airborne respiratory illness that threatens the life of of the daughter of the family and Lobzik is able to go and run to the building with the green stoop where they find that 
that man who comes with the black bag every time somebody has been sick in the past, who, of course, is the doctor who's able to come (laughs) and treat the little girl while her parents are both out looking for work at the lowest point of the depression so that nobody is home to take care of her except Lobzik, the the heroic puppy dog. So that's a great example of, you know, a very explicitly engaged work um, of of literature and the way that, that the politics is being deployed for a young audience in the 30s. Right. Uh, that is a really fascinating example. Um, I'm curious, uh, to what extent did Yiddish children's literature after the Holocaust have a distinctly different style and emphasis than it did before? That's also a great question, Zalman. So um, after the Holocaust, the whole thrust of Yiddish children's literature, which is being published pretty much exclusively in the Americas, in North and and South America, the whole thrust shifts toward cultural consolidation and preservation so that even committed leftists who are used to thinking of themselves as free thinkers at a time when there was a very sharp binary between frum and frei, between traditional piety and free-thinking, secular Jewish identity. Even those free-thinkers suddenly wanted to write about the Jewish holidays. We have all of these holiday collections that are published in Latin America. Um, We even have a holiday collection that is written by one of the foremost Zionist Hebrew children's authors, Levin Kipnis, it's published in New York um, right around 1960, I think in, in 1961. Um, he publishes Unteren Teitelboim under the date palm, and it's a book of holiday stories from a very um, Zionist perspective trying to sell Yiddish-speaking children in the diaspora on Israel and Zionism and the wonders of of Israel. Um, But he does it through holiday tales. The same thing with Sina Rabinovich's book of holiday stories that is published in Latin America and translated into Spanish, um, but never translated before into English. Wow. Um, Were there stories that you wanted to include in uh, the the anthology, or, or you would have liked to include, but for some reason you were not able to. So many stories. There's a lot of good <laughs> material on the cutting room floor. Um, some of it, well, I would say that you know, insofar as things had to be cut, it was mostly considerations of length. Um, sometimes there was a question is this really a children's story? Something had been marketed, written and marketed as a children's story and reading it through contemporary eyes, it doesn't necessarily come across as a particularly juvenile tale. Um, Sometimes I decided that a story was really historically interesting and I love to teach it and I love to talk about it to academic audiences but it was just too harsh or too violent or too politically distasteful to include in a volume for contemporary child readers. And an example of that would be Leib Kvitko, who's well represented by other stories and poems in the book. Um, He published a story in 1940 or 1941 called Vemesis Maidala, Whose Little Girl Is This? About a little girl in a train station with her mom, going to the dacha, going to the summer home, who gets separated from her mother and is absolutely paralyzed with fear, can't say a word, doesn't know what to say to the crowd of onlookers who's gathered around trying to help until she looks over at the wall and she suddenly sees a familiar face and a friend And she is emboldened and she's able to say her name and her age and her address. And of course, the friend, the familiar friend that she sees over on the wall is Papa Stalin. And I I just couldn't put that 
story wow. about her, <laughs> you know, her delighted embrace of Papa Colin. Um, I just couldn't put that into a book today for, for kids. I, I hear you. Um, uh, that's really fascinating. Um, do you think that there are common themes or principles that emerge from the stories across uh, you know, the whole anthology? So a really core theme is generosity and awareness of economic injustice with differing senses about how that needs to be addressed. So there are some stories that really prioritize and value charitable giving. There are other stories that kind of walk kids through the the mechanics, even symbolically walk kids through the mechanics of how you do a labor action, how you go on strike. Um, But that's a really deep-seated theme, the, the unfairness of, you know, the, the inequitable distribution of wealth um, that runs through a lot of the stories. And also the sense of pride in Jewish identity, and particularly when it's under attack in some way. Right. And uh, I'm curious, could you tell us uh, some of the translation issues that you had as you went through translating all of these uh, different texts from different places, somewhat different periods of time, and trying to make them relevant to contemporary readers? So there, there are two that I'll flag. One is that, as I explained, this literature arose so quickly that there was uh, there was the publication of Yiddish children's literature before anyone had sort of paused and taken a breath and realized maybe we need to speak to children in a different register with different vocabulary than we speak to adult readers. So this yields some incredibly beautiful, sophisticated, and I mean aesthetically sophisticated stories by master prose stylists like Sholem Ash that don't sound so much or don't sound entirely like children's stories because the vocabulary is just pitched at such a high level. So I always had the dilemma of how much should I let that historical fact of Yiddish children's literature and its development shine through? And how much should I take measures to kind of compensate for it and and make it more understandable to contemporary children? And then the the second issue that I'll flag is that um, childhood itself is not a, a stable entity. Our understanding of what childhood is and what is appropriate for children and what children can read and should read, that's something that's changed a lot in the decades that intervene between the original composition of these stories and and my translation. So I feel like that's an issue that I was always aware of as I was translating. I see. And uh, do you have a particular favorite uh, story in the book? I'm sure that you love all of them, but do you, do you have a particular favorite that you're willing to admit to? <laughs> well, I don't really have a favorite child either. Um, <laughs> but, but in the same way that I think sometimes when you've been through a, a difficulty with a child that's then gotten resolved, like if you, if you have a, a kid who just won't eat or for whom it's very difficult to teach the kid to eat, and I've had a couple of those, then the sight of that child eating in subsequent years becomes very pleasurable. Like it fills you with joy when you see that child really tuck into, you know, a bowl of food that you've prepared. And so in a similar way, the most difficult material to translate that that I included was a narrative poem by Leib Kvitko called Boots and the Bath Squad. And when I sort of cast my eye on Boots, I always feel this 
glimmer of joy. Like, yeah, I actually did it. And I, I made it rhyme. So, <laughs> so that's kind of like a favorite. <laughs> I, I hear that. That makes a lot of sense. What was it about the 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 text that made it so difficult to wrangle a translation of? So rhyming poetry and you know making poetry rhyme in the translation is always a challenge. Um, there are a lot of Yiddish stories where the author will all of a sudden, in a work of prose, just burst into a little bit of verse here and there. Um, This is a story that is told entirely in rhyming verse. So uh, there were there were no breaks to be taken. Um, And the first time that I attempted it, it was early on in my process, you know, seven, now eight years ago as a translator. I think I didn't have the um, the translation mojo yet. I did what they call a trot where I just got down a very literal plotting translation word for word, figuring out what each word meant. And I wasn't trying to make it rhyme. And then when everything else in the book was drafted and, you know, reasonably finished, I I wrote an article and I wanted to be able to quote one stanza. And I thought, maybe I can make one stanza rhyme. I'm going to try that. And I did it. <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe I could do one more stanza. And then when I had done two stanzas, <laughs> I knew that if I if I just, you know, put my nose to the grindstone, I would be able to make Boots and the Bass Squad rhyme. Oh, that is a great story. Um, so would you uh, do us the pleasure of uh, reading uh, a short piece from the anthology so we could get a little flavor of the treasures in the book? Sure. So... Um, I feel like I've read Boots in a number of other places, and I want to give you something new. So I'm actually going to take us to one of those stories that is mostly prose, but occasionally interrupted by bursts of rhyme. And this one is by Moishe Shifris, who wrote a group of stories that were set. It's called Feugel Canaric und andere Mises, The Canary Bird and Other Stories. And these are stories that were set in the communities of Jewish poultry farmers who lived in southern New Jersey, in Vineland and Tom's River and that whole area of New Jersey. And this is a story, uh, The Alphabet Gets Angry, about a little boy named Michele, who is just coming back from summer vacation and he's about to resume going to school and to Yiddish school. But he realizes the night before classes resume that he has not opened a Yiddish book all summer, and he might have forgotten how to read Yiddish. And so he (laughs) he lies in bed and he closes his eyes and he starts to be tormented by the letters of the Aleph base of the Hebrew Yiddish alphabet who, who come and start dancing around and whirling and twirling in his room. And then they start to attack him physically. Uh, And they say, what did you think? An entire summer, you didn't so much as look at us, and suddenly you want to be our best friend? Here, the kuf danced up onto Mikey and with its pointy stick started to jab him in the side, saying, not even once did you crack open the book so that we could get a bit of fresh air that Dalid started to jump before Mikey's eyes and spin his head left and right, saying, why you such and such, you've been living it up in the mountains and we've, the thin final nun could no longer hold back his fury. So he jumped with his point right onto Mikey's stomach and nodding his tiny head up and down with his eyes glued to the heavens, hit him hard with these words. You ran in grasses free of cares and chased all day the mountain hares, breaking twigs with country bums, munching apples, biting plums, sailing, swimming all day long, but not one Yiddish letter while you were gone? And now, look who the cat's dragged in. He's back, so we should let him in? And after all these summer harms, welcome him with open arms? 
Wow, that really is delicious. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Um, well, uh, <laughs> um, uh, before uh, we let you go, I want to ask you if there's any new project uh, that you're working on now that you want to tell us about. So there are two. One is that I translated the other 10 Lobzik stories from 1935 that don't appear in Honey on the Page. And I'm collaborating with a fabulously talented local actor and puppeteer and director here in Atlanta, a young man named Jake Krakowski, who just learned Yiddish last summer, started learning Yiddish last summer. And with Theater Emory, which is the repertory company at Emory University, um, he is directing a puppet theater adaptation based on my translations um, of the Lobzik stories. So working on that is a very exciting and fun pandemic pastime. And then the real work work that I hope to get back to in a much more robust way after the pandemic when there's childcare again is a critical study of this corpus of Yiddish children's literature and why we really need to understand the work that these stories and poems and plays were doing if we want to understand Ashkenazi Jewish modernity. Wow, I really love that you're involved in both uh, uh, spheres of puppeteers performing live uh, for children and uh, to children of all ages, and at the same time working on a, a serious uh, scholarly um, uh, explanation and, and, uh, and interpretation of this vital corpus. Um, so uh, with that, uh, Miriam, thank you so much for taking the time uh, today to share your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. As I hope you can hear in my voice, Zalman, I love nothing better than talking about these stories and poems. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do so for your listeners. Wonderful. Well, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.